0: Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Professor Mary Ziegler. Professor Ziegler teaches at Florida State University College of Law, where she specializes in the legal history of reproduction, the family, sexuality, and the Constitution. She's the author of three books and numerous op-eds. The books are Abortion in America, Illegal History, Roe v. Wade, the Present, uh, 2020, Beyond Abortion, Roe v. Wade, and the Fight for Privacy, 2018, and After Roe, the Lost History of the Abortion Debate from 2015. Welcome, Professor Ziegler. Thank you, Mary, for being here, and thank you for passing judgment with us.
1: No, yeah, no, thank you. My pleasure. So
0: let's begin not quite at the beginning, but let's trace the legal history a little bit. Obviously when it comes to abortion. And when it comes to what you've written about, I mean, I think the words Roe v. Wade appear in the title of all of your books. And this obviously <laughs> was you know, a watershed moment when it comes to reproductive rights. Could you tell us, I feel like this is so misunderstood, but what does the case actually say?
1: Well, one of the fascinating things, um, so Roe v. Wade is a, a fascinating case with a fascinating person at its center. Um, Norma McCorvey is a really Jane Roe and Roe v. Wade was a fascinating character um, and listeners can look forward to there's actually a really exciting book about McCorvey and her family coming out this year, Uh, not by me, but (laughs) uh, called The Family Roe. But uh, the case was Roe itself was about a Texas law that banned abortions except when a patient's life would be at risk. Uh, And the Supreme Court struck the law down. Um, And also struck down, uh, in a companion case, Doe v. Bolton, a a more modest set of abortion restrictions, and in doing so said that the right to privacy that the court had recognized in earlier cases was broad enough to encompass a patient's decision uh, to enter pregnancy. Um, And then Roe created what was called the trimester framework, which made it very difficult for states to regulate abortion in the first trimester. Uh, allowed states to regulate only for per patient health in the second trimester and only after fetal viability, which is the point at which uh, l- survival outside the womb is realistic, only at that point could uh, the government advance its interest in protecting fetal life. And Roe also said some, some things about fetal, the state's interest in fetal personhood that became very important later to the anti-abortion movement. But one thing that's striking, if you read Roe, if you've never read it and you're just a normal American who's aware of the politics of of abortion, there's very little, it's not a very feminist-sounding decision. The words a right to choose don't appear in the decision. It it feels very much like a decision about doctors and patients than a decision about equality for women. And some of that would come later and for reasons beyond the court itself.
0: Yeah, that's that's so interesting when I talk to my students about Roe versus Wade. I do try and say this wasn't some, you know, feminist watershed moment in the Supreme Court. So I want to emphasize a couple of things about what you just said and then kind of focus in on something about the Supreme Court. The court located in the right to privacy, the right to obtain access to an abortion, or is it better to say the court located in the right to privacy the right for doctors to provide women with an abortion?
1: It was sort of both. So Roe was sort of almost, I would say, sloppy about who, who the rights holder was. So sometimes Roe would say, you know, these are all factors that a doctor will consider. or And then at other times would say, you know, the, the would emphasize, for example, the damage that it would do to, to a woman or a pregnant person if, if that person was forced to continue a pregnancy against their will. So for example, you know, like the stigma of unwed motherhood or the difficulties of pregnancy or child rearing, which were quite quite clearly about patients and not doctors. So it was, it was very clear that the court wanted to locate the abortion right in medicine to make abortion a medical question that doctors and patients would decide, not a kind of social movement culture wars question. But it was a little bit less clear who the rights holder was, and that actually created some drama in the decades after Roe. When a variety of groups, you know, seized on Roe to say, "Oh, maybe patients have a right to, you know, experimental drugs, right, or to <laughs> that, that sort of thing, um, or maybe doctors have a right to practice medicine as they see fit." And the court sort of shut down both of those lines of effort, but it wasn't inevitable when Roe came down that they would, um, because it did sound both like a patient's and a doctor's rights decision in ways that would seem kind of weird to people who have heard of Roe today.
0: Yeah, so so that's kind of the second part of my question, which which I asked you, which is, you know, whose right is it? Is it the doctor's right to perform the abortion? Is it the woman's right to obtain the abortion? And then the first part, which I didn't specifically ask you, The court located this right in the right to privacy. Can you talk to us a little bit about, does the constitution anywhere say that there's a right to privacy? And was this the right place to locate this right, whether it be held by a doctor or by a woman?
1: Yeah, the the constitution doesn't mention a right to privacy. So the the court was relying not so much on the text or history of the Constitution, but on its own precedence. So in 1965, the court had suggested there was an implied right to privacy that covered married couples' right to use contraception. Um, in 1972, the court had hinted that that right to use contraception extended to individuals, not just to married couples. And then the court had issued a whole bunch of other decisions about crucially important life decisions in contexts like marriage or family or... Um, child rearing and parenting all of them based again on this idea of privacy and it wasn't really privacy in the sense we usually think of of secrecy or being left alone kind of more like autonomy people whether this was the right place to locate uh, the abortion decision was immediately controversial and it was controversial not just among Uh, The kinds of people you would suspect, because, of course, there was an anti-abortion movement, a pretty powerful anti-abortion movement before Roe v. Wade, as well as after. But it was also controversial with lots of academics who were sympathetic to the result in Roe, John Hart Ely at Yale being one, but also Ruth Bader Ginsburg some years later uh, would argue that the Roe court would have been smarter to say that abortion was a matter of equal protection. In other words, denying access to abortion was a form of discrimination against women, either because if we're talking about cisgender people, only women can get pregnant, or um, because abortion statutes in Ginsburg's view were motivated by stereotypes about gender roles. It's certainly likely that Roe would have received somewhat less criticism had that been the rationale the court had chosen. But I think to some degree, critics like Ginsburg sort of overstate their case because, of course, other privacy decisions about things like contraception were based on equally dubious reasoning from that standpoint and don't receive nearly the same amount of controversy and derision as Roe. And also, I think that Ginsburg actually suggested that maybe if the court had written a more convincing decision, abortion opponents would have been more okay with it. And that just completely misunderstands how the pro-life or anti-abortion movement feels about abortion and why, whether we're thinking about abortion in the constitution or abortion in morality or abortion in religion. So
0: you're one of the nation's leading experts. If you've were in the room when the Supreme Court was making this decision, and let's say there wasn't the whole line of cases dealing with the right to privacy. If we could, if they were just gonna decide for the first time, where are we gonna put this right? Where does, where should it best live? Is it best as an equal protection right? Does it actually make some sense as the right to privacy? Is it a substantive due process right? Like where in the constitution should we decide to hang this?
1: Well, I I think if you were, you see the Supreme Court struggling with this, I think, recently, for example, when you think of um, Obergefell versus Hodges, the court's same-sex marriage decision, where the court is sort of saying, uh, not in so many words, that the choice between equality and and due process or equality and privacy in this context almost feels like a false one, that it sort of has to be both, um, and that choosing one or the other almost necessarily makes the reasoning of the decision less compelling because I think obviously the abortion decision does have something to do with autonomy which is why the whole right to choose framing has has had such staying power right I mean we're almost 50 years in and a catchphrase that's pretty old still resonates with people in part because I think many people feel that it isn't something the government should be interfering with On the other other hand, I think Ginsburg had a point that an equal protection framing would have been easier to justify, you know, whether you're looking at doctrine or text. And also, I think, reflected the lived experience of people who believed that this was really about attitudes about women. So the the court, I think, would probably have been best served to do a a little of both. Um, but certainly at the time, you know, J- J- Justice Blackman and the other members of the court's majority uh, saw the, the kind of equality framing as a sort of a booby trap, right? That this was going to be sort of getting the court linked up with radical feminists and that that was just going to cause unnecessary controversy. Of course, they didn't imagine the <laughs> level of controversy that would accompany the Road decision. So they were probably a little bit naive in that respect. So
0: let me loop back to... a. Uh, Something we t- talked about just a little bit, which is you said like, Roe v. Wade wasn't this big watershed moment for feminists, and that this, it, the court is kind of sloppy. Is it the right of doctors? Is it the right of women? And in part, I wonder if that's because of the case's author, Justice Blackman. Um, Justice Blackman, my memory is, was on the board of the Mayo Clinic. And mm-hmm. the summer before. Roe v. Wade kind of went home and talked to a lot of doctors uh, about this decision. How much does the fact that Justice Blackman had the, this affiliation with the Mayo Clinic and knew so many doctors, how much of that affected the Roe v. Wade decision and therefore reproductive rights
1: in our country? I mean, so I think there there are two questions. How much did it affect the Roe v. Wade decision and how much did it affect reproductive rights in our country? I think the answers to those two questions are different. So it certainly affected the Roe decision. So if you go through Blackman's papers and the Library of Congress, he had a clipping uh, of a poll from Gallup suggesting that most Americans thought abortion should be a decision between a patient and a doctor. And if you read the beginning of Roe itself, Blackman essentially says, oh, there's been all this controversy about racism, about population control, about feminism, and we're going to, to kind of rise above all that and decide this is a matter of constitutional law. So clearly, I think he saw a medical framing and a constitutional framing as a, a, a sort of exit strategy from the ugliness of the abortion conflict. So it played a huge role in shaping how he wrote the opinion. Um, It did not necessarily shape reproductive rights in our country because almost immediately after Roe, social movements and lawyers began talking about Roe as if it was a decision about women's rights and women's equality, even though the Supreme Court had never said that. And pretty quickly, the Supreme Court sort of fell in line. So by the 1970s, you, you begin to see the court in various decisions about standing and, and information privacy saying, in fact, no, there, there is no freestanding right for doctors. It's really the right of women um, and beginning to articulate the abortion right in a way that feels a little bit more familiar to contemporary audiences as being about women and not about doctors. So this is one of many examples where the what the Supreme Court has to say in its own decisions, is not the only thing that matters when it comes to how those decisions are understood by politicians, by social movements, and ultimately you know, by the justices themselves.
0: So you've just been talking about a little bit of the aftermath of Roe. So I think this is the right time to move on and talk about, we know that Roe v. Wade created uh, an enormous reaction on both sides of the debate what were the first state laws that came out of the Roe v. Wade decision? Were states basically like, okay, well, this is the law of the land now? Or did states really immediately try to push the envelope and see what were the contours of Roe and how far could they go?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost wrong to think about it as states in the 70s, because generally in the in the 70s, there was no real clear political party alignment on abortion. So if you asked, you know, is the Republican Party the pro-life party in the 70s, people would look at you like you were an alien, right? That would just not really make sense as a question. Um, And so- the anti-abortion movement almost immediately decided to test the boundaries of how far, what Roe would allow, but that really wasn't the immediate push. The immediate push was for a constitutional amendment that would overturn Roe. And so some of the legislation that would look more familiar to us, things like mandating parental involvement or spousal involvement or informed consent, all of that was sort of like a stopgap solution for a movement that was really focused on criminalizing all abortions in every state. And state legislatures were, you know, sometimes receptive, sometimes not, but they weren't really driving the process at that point, because abortion wasn't really seen as a wedge issue in the same way by politicians really in either party. And there were, you know, pro-life Democrats and pro-choice Republicans. Um, So I think parties in general saw abortion as as sort of a way, something that would divide the rank and file as well as the party leadership. So it was really more a matter of sort of grassroots activists forcing this issue onto legislative agendas. It was only later that you see um, state lawmakers in particular, but federal lawmakers as well, seeing abortion as a way to get out the vote. So
0: I think that what you just said, so many aspects of what you just said are so overlooked in the sense that people think, "Oh, Democrats are pro-choice. Republicans are pro-life." And you explained that that would really be almost laughable if people said that, you know, forty years ago, forty five years ago. How do you think that we moved from the Roe v. Wade mindset where this wasn't purely a partisan political issue to where we are now, where, your party affiliation is almost just a direct proxy for your views on abortion.
1: Yeah, it's kind of complicated. So I think Ronald Reagan is a huge part of that story. Um, he realized and his operatives realized, in the, in the starting in 1976 when he launched an unsuccessful primary bid, but more clearly in 1980 when he, of course, won the GOP primary and won the presidency, that even if abortion divided party leadership, it could be a great way to recruit new voters. And Reagan in particular was looking to peel off some of the blue collar voters who had traditionally opted for the Democrats because of either their affiliation with unions or their interest in sort of their own economic well-being. So Reagan, I think, recognized abortion as a potentially promise wedge issue, a promising wedge issue, excuse me, in a way that others had not. And I think um, at that point, too, the other thing that Reagan was responding to was in 1978, um, there had been a handful of senators, incumbent senators, who had lost races. In part because, at least in theory, anti-abortion PACs or political action committees had helped to bring them down. So both parties began to see that even if most Americans had sort of murky positions on abortion that we might not recognize as pro-choice or pro-life, there there were a committed group of single-issue voters who might swing races either way. And so both parties, I think, began to stake out positions on abortion to appeal to those voters who are, again, a small but particularly passionate group, really um, on either side, pro-choice or pro-life. And after that, um, you began to see, I I think, a kind of feedback loop where people in the movements hardened their positions to convince the parties that compromise would hurt them, and the parties then hardened their positions to appeal to what they saw as single-issue voters. So by the 1980s, even as voters took a little bit of time to sort themselves out, the parties themselves had taken much clearer positions. So I think it's a story partially about political insight from people like Ronald Reagan, as well as money in politics and political action committees, making it possible to show that these single-issue voters were out there. We can thank... Ronald Reagan for a lot of
0: shifts, cultural shifts, societal shifts, legal shifts in our country. He certainly remade the federal bench and maybe that's for another episode where you and I will come back and talk about that. But let's move on a little bit from Roe v. Wade and then Reagan and talk about the next big abortion decision, or what I would consider to be the next big abortion decision, which is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Of course, there were a lot of decisions in between. But I always say to people, don't talk about whether or not Roe v. Wade will be overturned. Talk about the Casey framework, because Casey's the controlling case. Casey's the one that actually gives us the standard. It's the one we actually analyze restrictions under. Uh, is that right? And what did the court do in Casey? I remember you know, reading this phrase when I was in law school, we uphold the essential, the essential holding of Roe, which is another way of saying we're not overturning it, but we're just going to really mess with it and change things around. No. So, so yeah. what did Planned Parenthood versus Casey say?
1: Yeah, so Casey w- w- came at a time when everyone—it basically is sort of feels very like much like a moment like ours, right? So there was a supermajority on the court nominated by Republicans. Everyone expected that supermajority to overturn Roe. And in fact, what the court did, as you said, was preserve this essential holding. And so really ever since, people have been fighting about what that means. So um, what, what was clear was that the court was saying there there actually is a right to abortion of some kind before viability, which is crucial now. Viability is something people are fighting about. Um, but the court said the trimester framework has to go. And instead, we're going to replace it with this idea uh, called an, an undue burden standard. So... The court says you you cannot have laws that have the purpose or effect of creating a substantial obstacle for people seeking abortions. That's not particularly clear either, um, as some of the dissenting justices noted. It, it seemed to be a much easier test for states to pass than the trimester framework had been. In part, after all, the court in Casey upheld all but one of the restrictions that were before the justices, um, and. The court suggested that the government's interest in protecting life existed throughout pregnancy, not just at the end. And even the idea of an undue burden suggests some burdens are due, right? Some burdens are acceptable. But Casey was a very ambiguous decision. I think coming out of Casey, both the pro-choice and the pro-life movements knew that they had their work cut out for them when it came to defining what, what was and wasn't unduly burdensome. Another thing that Casey did that winds up being crucial today was that uh, in saving the right to an abortion, Casey emphasized the idea that there were powerful reliance interests. So often courts will hesitate to overrule a case if lots of people have organized their lives around it. That was a hard argument to make when it came to abortion because, of course, many people don't plan unintended pregnancies, much less a long time in advance. But The Casey court said there were still reliance interests because many women had planned their lives, their careers, their educations around the idea that they would eventually, um, that that abortion would be an option if they needed it. Uh, And so I think ever since then, really the cornerstones of reversal strategies, when you think about Roe and Casey, have been about this idea of reliance and whether abortion actually helps women and communities. And also about what we, what we mean when we talk about an undue burden, which was ambiguous in 1992 and it's ambiguous today.
0: So this is one of the things that I feel like students and members of the public and lawyers struggle with when it comes to the Supreme Court, which is what is an undue burden? What's undue influence? What's undue interference? I mean, from my perspective, it's whatever the court or whatever five members of the court says that it is at that particular time. Am I being a little too blasé about it? I mean, do we have a little bit more substance about what an undue burden is? Or can it just, it seems to me that it can absolutely shift with the composition of the court, that it's too much when five members of the court say it's too much.
1: I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, so I'm a legal historian, so I'm totally sympathetic to that. (laughs) You know, the the cynicism like I share. Um, I think we have a few clues in the sense of other cases where the court has said that laws are or are not unduly burdensome. Now, it's it's easy enough for the court to sort of navigate its way around cases to say, oh, this, this law is different from that law. But th- those, I think, precedents impose a few minor constraints in the sense that there may be, and we just don't know, given the court's current composition, but there are some conservatives on the court at the moment who are concerned about appearances, who feel a lot more comfortable saying that laws are not unduly burdensome when they can with a straight face say that those laws are closely related to ones the court has already upheld. So there was one case where the court upheld a ban on a procedure that uh, opponents called partial birth abortion, where the court illuminated a little bit what an undue burden was. There have been a series of cases um, in 2016 and 2020 where the court talked about what an undue burden was. At the end of the day, I think you're absolutely right that it, you know, it really is about who's on the bench, but but I think with Roe more perhaps, and Casey than any other area of constitutional law, the American public's paying attention, right? I mean, more Americans have heard of Roe than any other decision. It's a major election issue. Anytime anyone gets nominated to the Supreme Court, it's like the question. And so I think there are people on the court who know that everyone is watching and are a little more reluctant to just look like they don't at all care about precedent when talking about an undue burden. Um, Again, I mean, I could be wrong about that, right? There are a lot of conservatives we have yet to hear from um, on abortion in any meaningful way.
0: So, I think I'm going to ask you this question twice, maybe, because it feels to me like the big question coming up. And that is you've led us into that question with what's an undue burden and talking about the talking about precedent and how some conservatives, well, they might not have voted for Roe v Wade. They might have not voted with the majority in the Casey decision. Those are the decisions. And we do have a lot of precedent here. And that some people, and maybe we're not saying his name, but we might as well, people like Chief Justice John Roberts care a lot about precedent to a certain point, right? And we can, we can point out those moments, Citizen, you know, Citizens United, Shelby County, here's looking at you, where the Chief Justice doesn't seem to care quite as much about precedent. But do you think that in the next five years... We will no longer have a constitutional right to obtain access to an abortion.
1: It's really hard to say. I mean, ultimately, I would say yes, just because I think the people who have helped to select these justices for the court screened them with an eye, partly to seeing Roe overturned. And there's no reason to think that they won't get the job done. But there's always some unpredictability, because, of course, as I mentioned before, Casey, everyone expected... The court to overturn Roe then as well, and that didn't happen. And so I think that much remains to be seen because we have yet to hear anything from Donald Trump's nominees to the court. Um, really, I mean, we have, I guess, one or two, one opinion essentially from Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, and none from Amy Coney Barrett as a justice. And so it's hard to know whether. Those justices will be more attracted to the kind of approach Chief Justice Roberts has forged, which is some combination of, you know, a sort of stealth overturning of abortion rights, where you sort of hollow them out more and more from within without being clear about what you're doing, but maybe never go all the way to saying Roe is overturned or signing off on laws that ban abortion at fertilization. Um, and to what extent they're attracted to an approach that's been pretty clearly staked out by Clarence Thomas, who seems to be saying, essentially, like, I, I'm ready to overrule Roe tomorrow. Who's with me? <laughs> you know, the utter, it takes any opportunity in any opinion, not literally in any opinion, but any abortion opinion to re, to restate that position. We, we don't really know where the votes are. We know there are certainly conservative votes, but whether that's going to be a quick overturning of Roe or a sort of death of a thousand cuts, we don't know. And a death of a thousand cuts, of course, introduces more unpredictability because Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito are in their 70s. You can have unexpected retirements when it comes to the Supreme Court. And so the longer the, the elimination of Roe takes, the, the less certain we can be of the ultimate outcome. So
0: that's what I've always thought is going to be door number two, death by a thousand paper cuts, that the court doesn't have this big we're overturning Roe v. Wade moment because the chief justice simply doesn't want to stand for it, but that undue burden becomes a hollow promise. And it essentially means nothing at all, that nothing is an undue burden. And so the case still stands. We still say there's that right in the right to privacy, but it's virtually meaningless and we're all reliant on states. in. A, to determine whether or not they're going to be protective of reproductive rights or all but outlaw a woman's ability to obtain access to an abortion. And you said, we don't know exactly where a lot of the justices are, but there is a big case coming up. So I could talk to you for hours about this, but maybe we should wind down substantively with this question, which is there's a big Case coming out of Ohio that the court is going to hear dealing with abortion. Could you tell us a bit about that case?
1: Yeah, so there's there's well there are a couple of cases. There's a Mississippi case that the court has been sitting on since October that they could agree to take that um, essentially bans abortion at 15 weeks. So one, if we're looking for what's the case that could be the end for Roe. That at least has to be a possibility because it's really weird that the court has been kicking the can down the road with that case for as many months as it has. That case is significant um, for the same reason the Ohio case I'll tell you about in a minute is, which is that it, it deals, it gets rid of viability as the dividing line when states can criminalize abortions. The Ohio case with this, which the, in the six, just coming out of the Sixth Circuit, which just upheld this law. Um, is a variety of what's called a reason ban, which bans uh, specific reasons for abortion, in this case in cases of Down syndrome. And uh, these reasons bans are are effective or can be for two reasons. One, again, because they get rid of viability as the dividing line. You're not banning all pre-viability abortions, but you're banning some and opening the door to much faster pre-viability bans. Um, and also because they, they enlist this idea of, of kind of protecting, um, against abortion as a way of protecting against disability discrimination, which is not a simple historic slam dunk, but there's some, there's a grain of truth in the historical arguments that abortion opponents make. Um, whether it's the fact that Historically, abortion rights supporters did say that you should legalize abortions because people didn't want to have disabled children or because there were some tangled and not straightforward, but still some connections between some supporters of abortion rights and supporters of eugenics. So I I think a lot of court watchers think that this kind of of Down syndrome or reason span would give the court a really clear opening to um, either getting rid of viability or overturning Roe altogether. And certainly Clarence Thomas thought that because he wrote a long concurring opinion in a 2019 case about a recent span the court ultimately decided not to resolve, um, essentially telegraphing that he was ready to use these laws um, as part of uh, a campaign to undo abortion rights.
0: And this is a law where, again, the proponents are saying this doesn't limit a woman's ability to obtain an abortion. It just serves as a limit on doctors. And I think that we've seen that in the past and we're going to see more of that, which is, no, 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 this is not about abortion in in a sense at all or a constitutional right to an abortion. This is just about putting certain limitations on doctors. So this will certainly be something that we're watching. We've seen, with the advent of COVID, we saw all of those uh, new restrictions on a woman's ability to obtain access to an abortion. This is a evergreen topic that will continue for a long time, and we're very grateful for your for your expertise on this. And um, certainly, this is an area that we will continue to talk about for a long time. So. As listeners of the podcast know, we always end by asking our guests a little bit about themselves. And so here we go. Which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite
1: to a dinner party and why? Hmm, That's hard. I mean, I would probably either pick Thurgood Marshall because I just think his lawyering is fascinating or Virginia Woolf because she's my favorite novelist and I want to talk to her about how she came up with her ideas. Can we please have a Virginia Woolf book club over Yeah, Zoom that would be
0: awesome. Or sometime? Okay, perfect. It would be, In,
1: we should also, if, if, if Thurgood Marshall could come, that would be even better. But if,
0: Oh we, my God. If that would yeah. be an ultimate moment. I don't dare to dream that high right now. What I would like is the Virginia Woolf book club. I joined a book club one time. I strongly push that the first book we read be To the Lighthouse, that's and my favorite book too. It's t- totally. It's gonna. I'm gonna sound like such an English uh, major cliche, but it completely changed my view of so many things, and I was basically kicked out of the book club. So it's just you and me. Um, <laughs> That's okay.
1: That's better than it was. It's one more than it was before.
0: Exactly. It was one more than what we had four minutes ago. Um, question number two out of three. You're going to be stranded on a desert island, and you can bring one meal. What is it?
1: Oh boy, that's hard. I'm be probably pasta. I'm a, I'm a big exercise person who's a vegan. So I, I eat a ton of carbs.
0: Last question. You get one superpower for an hour. What is it?
1: Hmm. I mean, maybe to, to, to bring people back from the dead or heal people. I think I'd really like to do that, especially in COVID times,
0: especially in COVID times. Professor Ziegler, thank you for passing judgment with us.
1: Of course, yeah, anytime. My pleasure.
0: You can find Professor Mary Ziegler on Twitter at Mary R. Ziegler. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at past Judgment Pod, and on Instagram at Passing Judgment Pod. Thank you for our listeners. We're so grateful to be able to have these conversations with you. This is a conversation that we can continue for a long time, and we wish everybody a good day.